We wish they all could be California schools. But what about Oregon, Washington, and Colorado and Utah for that matter? They may get a little rain and even a little snow, but don't let that dampen your spirits on West Coast football. Because like they say in Eugene, it never rains in Autzen Stadium. So go west, my son, and visit the Sons of Westwood. That's right, we're talking about the traditions and the glory that is Pac-12 football. A conference that collectively boasts some of the most beautiful scenery in all the college gridiron has to offer. There's the Rose Bowl that sits in front of the seductive San Gabriel Mountains. At Husky Stadium in Union Bay out in Seattle, UW fans love their sailgating almost as much as they love their dogs. And win or lose, you'll leave in awe of Rice-Eccles Stadium in Utah and Folsom Field in Colorado with their striking mountain backdrops behind a frenzy of football fandom. Rivalries include the Big Game, the Civil War, the Apple Cup, and the Duel in the Desert, where teams vie for the Axe, the Platypus, the Apple Cup Trophy, and the Territorial Cup, respectively. They also play for the right to win and ring the Victory Bell in L.A. and proudly paint it your school's colors. You can also do the same to the A in Tempe, or the same letter in Tucson, though the home teams don't take kindly to it, and do all they can to protect it. While they're at it, they better protect their home turf as well by yelling loudly and causing disruption. Like fans at Autzen, where you can feel the Autzen bounce, or the Muss at Utah, who's always ready to aid in the tussle, or the persistently energetic colony of beavers at Reeser Stadium. Even in the den at the Rose Bowl, they aim to stay and cheer their Bruins in their home stadium for the new year, as they perform their popular eight-clap cheer. If you're thrifty like at Cal, join the Misers and watch a game from Tightwad Hill. Enter the field by spreading out of Tillman Tunnel with courage, honor, and loyalty, like its namesake did. Run with Ralphie the Buffalo, or ride the Harley with the Oregon Duck. You want more mascots? We've got Cougars, Wildcats, and Bears. No Wizard of Oz pun here. There's the two Utes in Salt Lake City, well, 85 of them actually, and their mountain friends the Buffaloes may leave you running. There's the Sun Devils in Tempe and Trojans in L.A., and the slightly less terrifying Huskies of Washington and Ducks and Beavers in the Pacific Northwest. But what's up with Stanford? Are they really named after a color? That they are. In fact, Cardinal is one of the many shades of red you'll see in the land of the setting sun. Arizona also wears Cardinal, with blue, and a close but darker crimson and gray at Wazoo, and you'll see the old crimson flag waving proudly on the set of College Game Day. There's the maroon of ASU mixed with gold, and gold also makes its presence known at other schools, in both the yellow of Cal and the metallic variety, like at UCLA and Colorado. But what's with the highlighter hues at Oregon? Forget about that, let's celebrate good football. Shoot the victory cannon at Cal. Ready the chainsaws at OSU, and start ringing hell's bells at ASU. Blast the air raid siren in Seattle, or head east to Pullman and you'll get the air raid offense throw up the O to help win the day at Oregon. Split your fingers and give the V for victory for the men of Troy. Forks up in Tempe and the chop at Utah. And when signaling the first down at Reeser, be sure to bring your arm all the way back. Don't fear those opposing crowds. Bear down, fork them, and fight on. Traveler, make your trek and signal the torch. We're ready to light things up here on a bowl full of chips. And while you're at it, can we get those SC song girls in here? We've got you covered like the Colorado Arc at Folsom Field. And like at Oregon, we hope to make you want to shout, for good reasons or otherwise. So even though the sun may set in the west, the fun is on the rise here on a bowl full of chips. Next.
hey, brah, let's travel across the country and go back three hours on the clock to Pac-12 country. Welcome to Pac-12 Week on a bowl full of chips. I am your specific host, speaking of the Pacific Coast, Chappie, and I am joined by my West co-host, Bip Tide. Bip, how's it going, dude? Doing well, Chappie. We've spanned the country with our reviews and traditions, starting one on the East Coast at the ACC, and today we finish up with the Power Five conferences on the West Side and talk <laughs> 12 football. Uh, how, how about you, Chappie? How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Um, we had the good fortune of going to a Hall of Fame banquet from my high school coach yesterday. Got to see some old um, teammates of mine and... You know, it's really true about what they say about football coaches. There are there are few people that really impact you, and it was good to see Coach P. So shout out to him, and shout out to uh, the whole uh, high school crew, and it's good to see everybody there last night. So, champion, let me ask you a question here, real quick. How many times did he mention you as to the reason as to why he's being inducted? <laughs> well, they had to cut him off after a while. Um, you sure, know, it sure. was just uh, it got to be more about me, and so I wanted to put the spotlight back <laughs> on him. So, no, right, no, right. I, uh, you know, if, if I could lay one claim to fame, it is that I uh, am. I was the all-state placeholder that really kept things in line to to make sure that our point afters were put through the uprights and uh, also one uh, pretty good backup option quarterback if I don't say so myself. <laughs> well, well, hey, as as any Dallas fel, uh, as any Dallas Cowboy fan can tell you, uh, in their disdain towards Tony Romo that they might have, uh, placeholding is a, a hell of a duty, Chappie. Yes, it is one that can never ever be overlooked. And you know, ironically, Bip, earlier in the season, I was thinking, you know, they've got awards for a lot of different categories now they really should have one for placeholder and i found out that there was and um, <laughs> i i want to say that mac loudermilk the punter for ucf won that award this year i can't think of the name of it and i wouldn't swear 100 percent that he was the guy that won it but i did hear that so finally us placeholders are getting their due credit in the world <laughs> Well, well, I'd be real excited to see that uh, highlight clip that they show of each candidate during the award show. <laughs> right, yep. <laughs> With a musical Ooh. montage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's enter into our Lenten promise of a bowl full of chips, shall we, Bip? Today we will be talking Pac-12 traditions and stories of all 12 Pac-12 teams, plus BYU out of the Beehive State, just to give you a little bit extra um, and, and take from the Independence League as well. If you have ever wondered why UCLA has the colors of blue and gold or why in the world Oregon shows the nickname of the seemingly tame sounding ducks amidst the Cougars, the Huskies, and even the damn beavers, we've got it all for you. And here at Beef FC, we bring football closer. We want to thank you for listening. This is episode 20 for Bip and I, and we're glad you're here with us again. And if you're here for the first time, trust that we're going to give you the content you will enjoy hearing, and we encourage you to tune in again for the coming podcasts. We thrive on diversity and complete coverage of the game that you love. The best way to make this podcast even better, though, is to interact with us via Twitter or email. Let us know what you like and what you would like to hear. You can find us on Twitter. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC BIP. Pretty simple. Uh, you can also email us if Twitter is not your thing. We are at bowlfullofchips at gmail.com. Just bowlfullofchips. No need to throw the A in there. 
And speaking of Twitter, Bip, we're going to give a quick Twitter shout out to, you know, you had referenced the highlight reels of all those wonderful college placeholders. There is a, a really good highlight company, if you will, that has a YouTube channel. They also have a Twitter handle. They are Harris Highlights, and you can find them on Twitter at the HH Show underscore. Again, that's at the HH Show underscore. And the best place to really look, though, is on YouTube. And so uh, I'll be honest, Bip, this was uh, kind of my lunchtime ritual and routine when I would be eating my food before I would get into my college football news and notes and, and preparation for, for my writing gig this year, I would click on the Harris highlights. And it's really just a lot of the great clips and a look back at some of the dramatic eye candy of college football. So I encourage that you give them a follow, but more so check them out on YouTube. Sure, sure. So we love college football here at Bullful of Chips. We also love to laugh. And in the spirit of laughter, and since we're going to talk about the Colorado football program, Bip and I truly love South Park. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's had its ups and downs over the last five years or so, but by and large, one of the more influential TV shows, not just animation, but uh, of any type of genre um, that there's ever been. I mean, when this came out, it was so groundbreaking uh, because the, the, the most obscene cartoon that you'd ever seen was maybe Beavis and Butthead, where they throw out a couple swear words and, and talk about sex periodically. But right. man... And it's not just the sophomoric humor that that makes South Park so groundbreaking. The the issues that they touch upon and the tongue in cheek um, topics that they have, and the fact that they go after anything and everything mm-hmm. without any apology. And for those of you out there who are un- unaware, they had a character, Jeff, and uh, was was voiced by Isaac Hayes, who is a Scientologist. They had a whole episode dedicated to kind of bashing Scientology and how they thought that it was kind of a ridiculous religion, uh, even more so kind of saying as how it was kind of a cult. And, you know, they they said that they when they were making that, they knew fully, fully well that they were probably going to lose Isaac Hayes, one of their one of their friends and one of their uh, the voices in, in their show. And they said, well, if we if we pull some punches on Scientology, then we have to start doing it for everything. So yep. just a, a, an amazing job by them and the fact that how they do, they can just have blinders on and write what they feel is funny and what is relevant, and they do so without apologizing to anyone. Yeah, it, it really is. I like that full steam ahead approach. And to their defense, I know that they've taken a lot of heat and criticism, and they knew that going in, and they knew it was going to be a big career risk doing what they did, but obviously the benefits paid off. But, you know, they they stand by the notion that nothing is off limits. I mean, from Christianity to um, Judaism to Scientology to um, various physical and mental uh, challenges. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of refreshing knowing that most people that I've talked to can sit back and they understand that it is for entertainment and they're not out there to try and offend anybody or upset anybody. It's really just, I think the, the, the most classic humor is the stuff that you feel you shouldn't laugh at, but somebody else said it and and you can laugh at it because you didn't say it. So uh, right. I, I agree. I mean, South Park was truly groundbreaking and, and we kind of follow it up with Family Guy today, another great show, but South mm-hmm. Park really was the one that 
um, not just crossed the line, but they kind of did a, a full um, first, you know, shoulder first dive suplex over the line. Um, yeah, like you said, Beavis and Butthead, even the Simpsons, some people said that that was yeah. a little bit of shock value, but um, it was really a, a whole different level with uh, Trey and Matt from South Park. So kudos to them for what they did. And uh, clearly they, I don't think that they're sorry for any of the success that they've uh, acquired. So Bip, uh, in the nature of what we do and ranking things, let's hear your top five characters aside from the four regular boys who are on the show. I'm going to go five to one, Chappie. So number five, I'm going to start with uh, Kenny McCormick's dad. He can always be seen wearing a <laughs> blatantly says scotch on it. And right. uh, always looks as if he just got done drinking a bottle of it. Um, number four, I'm going to go Jimmy Vollmer. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of, um, disorder he has, but he sure uh, is a likable character, um, and I can't help. My, I can't stop myself from laughing anytime that he gets in his stutter. Right. Uh, yeah. Especially when he's when he's in the middle of yelling at someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The matter he gets, the worse uh, the stutter seems to be debilitating. So, <laughs> uh, number three, I'm going to go, uh, Mister Miss, uh, back to Mister Garrison. And- <laughs> The, the fact it, they've been able to utilize him for just about uh, uh, any of the gender um, current issues in the world, mm-hmm. uh, having transformed uh, back and forth um, a crude teacher that uh, I'm sure a lot of other teachers wish that they could just go out and say what he said to the students. Um, How many but, times uh, have I told you that, Bip? How many times have I told you that <laughs> I, I wish I could just put uh, play on YouTube and say what he's, <laughs> what he's saying? So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you could, I bet you would just have a sound drop board in your classroom from Mr. Jackson. Absolutely. Um, number two, I got to go with Butter Stotch, the, the lovable uh, kid that's picked on. But, uh, man, he, he – uh, always backs up everything that uh he he stands for but um lots of fun from the kids picking on him and number one can i can i can i guess that your number one might be somebody who sits around in his underwear quite a bit (laughs) yeah and i think we might share this one chappy randy marsh um and he's just interestingly enough um trey parker said that the that character is modeled after his dad Mm -hmm. uh find that incredibly funny when you see how outlandish uh, Randy Marsh is. So always, always good for um, something outrageous that uh, embarrasses Stan and also his wife and his daughter as well. Randy Marsh, the clear cut number one for me, Chappie. But how about you? Yep. uh, I think that's a great list. I'm going to go number five. I have Jimmy Vollmer at number five. Again, same thing. Uh, when he really gets into his rants, that's when the hilarity goes full bore. Um, <laughs> so uh, certainly doesn't let his his verbal or his physical impairment slow him down. He seems to be living uh, quite a, a rich life that he wants to live at such a young age. Number four, I'm going to go Tuan Lu Kim, the lovable <laughs> Asian uh, uh shitty walk uh and that's spelled c-i-t-y in his accent uh you know just a lot of good a lot of good from him uh especially when he turns against uh quote unquote his own kind (laughs) Um, number three i did go with uh mr ms mr garrison and uh i think one of my favorite episodes was the episode where he was trying to prove to everybody that he 
was truly a woman and he loved being a woman and he wanted to experience everything it, it took to become a woman. Um, number two, I'm going to go with any Canadian on that show. Uh, Trey, uh, yes. Trey and Matt did an outstanding job of really um, dramatizing a, a crude and really not that accurate, but slightly uh, relatable uh, um, persona for, for those Canadian characters. So uh, with the, the heads that detach and uh, hey, buddy, uh, hey, guy. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, number one, I, don't, I, I think I've seen it on so many people's lists. Randy Marsh, you got to go with him because I think in a way he can remind everybody a little bit of their own father and, and some of the idiosyncrasies yes. that uh, you look at and say, oh, dad, why, why did you do this? And why are you trying to act this way? But um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, not, not only not just your own father that you get embarrassed by, but, you know, some you know, the normal idiot that you see out in public where you get embarrassed in the fact that you're in the same country as that person. Like, well, uh, society. <laughs> well, true, true story, listeners. Uh, when, when young Bip here was a, a lad uh, at a friend's house, I had the misfortunate <laughs> pleasure of uh, going to pick him up down the street and said friend's father opened the door and answered in his tidy whities wondering uh who uh who who bip was and uh i was thinking Ooh. did i did i uh knock on the wrong door and man is this awkward but uh, i think it was even a little bit more awkward of the fact that uh my brother bip was there so <laughs> yeah and it was about two in the afternoon so yeah, exactly <laughs> he didn't have the uh the scotch hat on but uh maybe a little bit of scotch breath i don't know <laughs> right. i tried to yep. keep my distance at that point so <laughs> well, um, back to college football. We we want you to join our program. We want you to commit to us. We want you to sign your letter of intent by subscribing, sharing, liking, and reviewing us online. And please, please, please don't put yourself into the transfer portal and leave. We'll do what it takes to keep you here, unlike some of these athletes that still can't make up their mind today. Yeah, and if you're on the edge in regards to where you stand after listening to an episode or two, let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Let us know how we can make things better for you, the listener. Yeah, we we certainly do not get our feelings hurt easily. I mean, our main goal is we want to make this podcast as best it can be. So we accept any praise if you have it. But if you've got constructive criticism, even if you say that this is the worst podcast you've ever heard, let us know what about it needs to be fixed and we will certainly do what we can and give it careful consideration to to make sure that it's going to hit on some level that you enjoy um so again uh we thank you for making your official visit to a bowl full of chips and we want you and your family and friends to um continue with us so that segues perfectly bip into our first topic on news and notes today and that is our transfer so let me give you a rundown. Three big transfer decisions this week. For, uh, one started hot off the press today. Alex Hornerbrook, formerly of the Wisconsin Badgers, has uh, allegedly committed to Florida State and will transfer there and be eligible immediately to play this season. Bip, what do you think about Hornerbrook? Well, I smell a scapegoat for Willie Taggart. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, Hornerbrook played five fewer games uh, in 2018 compared to 2017. So the fewer yards and touchdowns was to be expected, but he also fell in yards per attempt, completion percentage, and had a much worse touchdown to interception ratio. I'm not even so sure he beats out James Blackman for the starting job. As Agreed. Blackman start this year, threw for 421 yards, four touchdowns, one pick against a pretty decent NC State defense. Also completed 63% of his passes. He had a respectable 2017, um, considering he was thrust 
thrust into the starting job as a freshman after Francois went down in the Alabama game. So this should be one of the more interesting quarterback battles in the spring. And I think it comes down to talent from Blackman over um, experience from Hornerbrook. But uh, real interested to see what what happens down in Tallahassee in the spring uh, with this quarterback battle. Yeah, and and I would I would agree with you. I think Hornerbrook gives a little bit of an edge with experience, and maybe just just at first glance, he seems like somebody who might be a little bit better huddle presence and locker room presence than Blackman. Now, again, that's not to say that Blackman is not, but um, I, I've seen it. Definitely from Hornerbrook in in the first three years, whereas Blackman, you know, kind of came in, like you mentioned, for Francois and and seemed to have decent command of that offense and of his teammates. But again, you you don't know unless you play a full season. And again, that was two years ago. So um, right. it'll be interesting. And to you see. figure that if you figure that if, if Blackman had even somewhat of a, a presence in the locker room that he would have taken taken over for Francois at some point this year. So, right. And he seems more fit to the uh, the Kendall Bryles type offense of you know go fast pace catch set yeah. throw, whereas Hornerbrook is more of a pro style type quarterback, somebody who, quite frankly, would would be better under center and running out of a pro eye or or some sort of pro style offense where he can read and dissect. And he's I think a little bit more of the cerebral guy, whereas Blackman I think gives you more physical tools to run uh, and, and and can move out of the pocket the way that Kendall Bryles and Willie Taggart like to to run that offense. Um, yeah, and if Hornerbrook had uh, if Hornerbrook had issues with concussions and and regressed that much this year behind that Wisconsin offensive line, oh boy, he's in for a rude awakening down in Tallahassee. Yep, I, I was thinking the same thing. I, I personally felt that if he were to transfer somewhere out east like Pitt, where he's going back home and playing in a pro style offense that Pat Narduzzi likes to run, and and things are a little bit more physical there, I thought that that was going to be the best move for him or maybe even go in some place in the Big Ten like Rutgers um, where he could maybe play right away and, and they could continue to mold um, Art Sitkowski. But nonetheless, he's allegedly going to Florida State where the Tomahawk Chomp is hopefully going to, for his sake, going to be cheering him as opposed to pointing him to the door. So um, <laughs> another a uh, key transfer was Parker Braun, an offensive guard who transfers from Georgia Tech and is going to the University of Texas. Now, Parker was a two-time All-ACC player, um, and this is good news for the Longhorns, not only because of his talent, but they lose three starting offensive linemen, so um, he'll be eligible this year, seemingly will will uh, be penciled into that starting offensive group right away, and somebody who, you know, coming from Georgia Tech is going to be an intelligent guy on that front line and somebody who is also quick and can maneuver because of that offense that they ran, not so much beef and brawn. It's more so good feet and getting downfield. And, um, you know, that's something that will, will help Texas, especially when they like to run with Ellinger. And, um, if they can get that running game going early on this year. Yeah. Big loss for GT. Right. And then, um, this one scratches my head, uh, even more than Hornerbrook and that's Nick Starkle, who, put himself in the portal about a month ago from Texas A&M, and he ends up at Arkansas with Chad Morris. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad fit, but they already got Ben Hicks. And that, I mean, Ben Hicks has experience playing under Chad Morris in in his offense. So to me, Hicks already has kind of that, uh, that inside lead in the track. clubhouse. Yeah. The inside track. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know if Starkle is uh, really that 
on the same level that, that Hicks is. And, and if he feels that he's got just as good of a shot, but that one kind of uh, puzzled me a little bit. I thought that there were other locations that Starko could have had maybe a better shot and, and maybe a little bit more of an equal opportunity to play, but we'll see how things go in the spring. But I know that even Arkansas fans were kind of looking at that saying, all right, I guess game on in the, in the quarterback room. Yeah. And the only thing I could think of is he's going to be a junior this year, but uh, if I read it correctly, he's going to be, he's a grad transfer. So he's got to have two years of eligibility remaining. And I think he should be immediately eligible for this year. Right. So what his thought is, is that he competes with Hicks this year, wins or doesn't win. Um, he wanted to be with Chad Morris and he's got at least one year to show NFL scouts what he can do. So maybe that's what his mindset is. Could be. But if he had set and wanted to sit this year then he you figure that he could have gone to a place that has a lot better supporting cast than arkansas right granted they have a good recruiting class coming in but i'm with you talented quarterback but just seems like a, a wrong fit i thought maybe he would have uh tested the waters in the sec with maybe mississippi state kentucky or gone back home to uh uh stayed stayed in the lone star state maybe picked uh tcu or some somewhere like that yeah yep um so we'll see how that plays out and and how chad morris handles that so i mean sometimes you know like they say um iron sharpens iron and uh, maybe that'll make both quarterbacks better and and chad morris will be the the main benefit in in the long Mm -hmm. run so well speaking of portaling uh this brings up a a great question here and something that is is getting to be frustrating to me so um there's one there's two thoughts to portaling and on one hand some people say well portaling up hurts the smaller program so we see guys like jonah jackson who left rutgers to go to ohio state um we saw guys like tyler mabry from buffalo who was an all-conference tight end uh portaling up so to speak to go to maryland Um, and there's other cases as well but then on the other hand Maybe this uh, this whole portal situation will encourage some three and four star players to possibly attend a school for the first couple of years um, at the group of five level, and then they can quote unquote portal up to a bigger program and treat it almost like a minor league system. Now, obviously, if you're one of those group of five schools, you don't want to look at it that way. But if you can get immediate success from somebody who might be buried in the depth chart at a at a power five school but they can play for you right away and bring you some success knowing that they're likely going to transfer and go to the sec or the big 10 or the acc um, after their sophomore or junior season um you know it's kind of six one half dozen the other what do you think about that bit yeah i mean i i'm not a huge fan of the the transfer portal. i think it's good in theory um yeah and i think that it's nice to have this exposure because this really does it's not really much different than a guy just deciding to transfer, but this get, this does give you a whole lot more exposure. What I don't like is the fact that when you kind of announce that you're transferring somewhere, you're not committing to that school officially. You're just saying, right. hey, I want to go here. They want me. I'm going to go here. But you could change your mind at any moment's notice uh, before the season starts, before you enroll, or whatever that official moment is. So um, I, I don't. I also don't like the fact that, you know, you, you think about guys like Khalil Mack, Antonio Brown, Ben Roethlisberger, guys like that, that starred at smaller time schools to where mm-hmm. it really provided a shot in the arm for at least three years for those institutions. And that's really yeah. one of the major ways that they can go from a two win team to a 10 win team potentially in their respective conferences. So I don't like the fact that it's causing for more of these guys to portal up, as you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. but, but you're right. It, it does, uh, create an, an interesting dynamic, 
for future recruiting classes of if you're a fringe three, four star, maybe you do go and stay in state or um, somewhere closer to home, go to a smaller school, get some mm-hmm. exposure for yourself, and then you can make the jump. And it helps out both the athlete and the smaller school uh, compared to if they were to go to a power five conference from the get go. Sure. Now, here's the thing that that bothers me more than anything, and that is there has to be a timeline and a deadline to be in this damn portal. Now, we've talked about that before. So here's what I'm referencing. A.D. Miller just this week changed his mind and said, you know what? I've committed to Illinois. I've I've gone on visits, but I'm going to stay at Oklahoma, even though I have basically told the Illinois coaching staff and I've told my Oklahoma coaching staff that this is where I'm going to go. And there's no penalty. There's no, there's nothing to stop him from doing that and making that late change as we're into spring practice. We also saw the same thing with cornerback Greg Johnson at USC recently. So he put himself in the portal. And then just recently, as of this week, he was seen at practice. And basically it looks like he's going to stay at USC, even though he has not officially withdrawn his name from the transfer portal. Um, And there was also a a report that said that Bubba Bolden, who has committed to Miami and all reports are saying that he's going to go to South Beach and Coral Gables, that he was at the USC practice. Now, he wasn't in pads, but he was at least there. And so that kind of raised some eyebrows. So I think that absolutely the NCAA needs to step in and say there has to be a timeline or deadline. And so here's what I propose, Bip. I say that the portal opens Tuesday, the Tuesday after the national championship. So they play it on a Monday. That fo- So basically at midnight, Tuesday morning, the transfer portal is open. And anybody who wants to put themselves in this portal can do that. They can uh, open themselves up to recruitment. And then they have until the last Friday in February to – um, commit somewhere or to take themselves out. And if they don't, if they don't officially um, send in a some sort of electronic message saying, I, uh, Tim Chapman, am taking myself out of the portal, then they automatically have to sit out that next year. So if they miss it, kind of like with your taxes, if you miss the deadline, yeah. there's penalties. Um, or if you make a decision, you make that decision and then you you hold on to that. And if you if you commit to a team and then you decide on that last Friday that, you know what, maybe staying in Norman, Oklahoma is better for me. I'm going to do that. But you have to officially make that designation because this is not good. It's not fair to the coaches. It's not fair to the teammates. It's not fair to themselves, really. I mean, they're that limbo, that back and forth that they're going through is really, I think, detrimental to everybody involved there. So um, and if, like I said, if they miss that deadline, they automatically have to sit out a year, even if they don't end up going anywhere. So if I say I'm putting myself in the portal and then it comes um, the Saturday in February and I've missed the deadline, then um, bam, I am not eligible to play for my team that year. And that puts more responsibility and accountability on these players. And it's not to say that they have to do it on their own. You know, Bip, that they've got advisors who are going to be on them and say, hey, look, Bip, you've got till tomorrow. Are you here or are you gone? You know, mm-hmm. um, if you're going to be here, you need to declare that now. If not, um, doesn't matter whether you're here or somewhere else next year. And not only that, if you're ineligible um, because you missed that deadline, who's to stop your current school from saying, you know, what, we're going to cut you all together. We're going to drop your scholarship. And now you officially are, are, are not on scholarship anywhere. So, again, I, I think there has to be that timeline. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I like the timeline that you mentioned. So even if it's not the last uh, 
Because um, that gives you two months. I mean, two yeah. months is and, plenty and, of time. And even if they shorten it up, as long as it's after the draft declaration deadline, because then players can really understand what the depth chart's going to kind of look like yeah. after that. Or or you make it the the Friday after the second national signing day period. Or right. Or along those lines to where you're like, okay, I'm already at this university. Here's the guys that are leaving. Here's the guys that are staying. Here are the new incoming freshmen that are coming in that are going to compete for my job. Uh, but yeah, there needs to be a deadline because, I mean, in, in the Bubba Bolden instance, let's say that he stays at USC. How is he able to be at Miami's practice? And how is that any difference for a guy that is at a university, doesn't play at all throughout the year? They have to sit out a year if they were to transfer the next year. And the reason yeah. it is for the competitive balance of you don't have any trade secrets or whatever at that university. Well, if you're right. in on spring practice and you're in gym clothes, I don't care if you're participating or not. You're sitting in on spring practice. You're yep. essentially a part of that team, a part of that university. Not only that, but you're also missing your other university's practices as well. So both a something to, to keep the competitive balance and also to make sure that you're not doing anything detrimental to your original or your current school. Yeah, and, and I never begrudge a, a player for doing what's going to be best for him. But in these right. cases, it's sounding more and more like it's it's all about them and forget my teammates, forget my school, forget the school that I may be interested in going to, you know, and right. uh, there and has to be that that point where you just say, OK, enough is enough. This is your time. Make a decision. And and I know this isn't the, the major driving factor, but what about ac- academics? I mean, Bubba Bolden's not on campus at USC. Oh, that's right. They go to school. I forgot uh, about that. Hell, yeah. What the <laughs> hell is he going to do? Uh, I just, sorry, I missed my spring semester. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I know. And because trust me, as many college football fans as there, there are, there are an equal amount of people who are already have the, the microscope on these quote unquote student athletes saying, okay, if you're going to get university money, if you're going to get in some cases taxpayer dollars, mm-hmm. yeah. um, then it needs to be going to something and, and, and not this professional type free agent market. So, well, and, and uh, taking it, taking it past the, the being a detriment for the player for missing classes and whatnot you're really putting the coach in a tight spot. So say Bolden goes back and because he didn't attend classes potentially throughout the mm-hmm. whole semester, he's academically ineligible for the fall. I mean, yep. Yep. Yeah. It, it just, uh, it, it baffles me. And I, I agree 100% that there needs to be a deadline to be to put yourself in, to take yourself out. And there needs to be a for sure commit uh, signing process. If you say that you're going to leave one school for another. Bingo. Yep. Well, let's get right into our our main topic for this podcast, BIP, and that is Pac-12 traditions. Now, we have had the good fortune of covering the other four Power Five conferences, starting with the SEC, the ACC, the Big Ten, and then last week we did the Big 12. So now we're getting out to Pac-12 country. And BIP, we're going to start out in Southern California with the USC Trojans, whose moniker is fight on. Okay. So that's the, the slogan that they use. It's also the name of their fight song. So the Nick, the Trojans nickname was, uh, comes from a, a sports editor for the LA times. So originally USC was known as the fighting Methodist, which a lot of schools early on, they, they took some sort of, uh, religious name. I know Northwestern was something very similar. Well, in 1912, USC AD Warren Bovard approached Owen Byrd, who was the editor at the LA Times, and asked him to suggest a more appropriate nickname. So prior to a contest between USC and Stanford, two pretty big rivals today, 
Bird called attention to the fighting spirit of USC athletes and likened them to Trojans. So um, as he put it, the term Trojan uh, meant that no matter what the situation, what the odds or what the conditions, the competition must be carried on to the end and to those who strive must give all they have and never be weary in doing so. So that's where the, the Trojans nickname comes from. Not really the best story in the world, but at least it gives you an idea. Now, Tommy Trojan is kind of the unofficial mascot, uh, somebody who dresses up in that Trojan uh, garb. But uh, their original mascot <laughs> was actually a mangy stray dog named George Tirebiter. <laughs> and um, named that because this, uh, this flea-bitten mutt would chase at cars and start chewing at the tires as they drove by. Not exactly the best pastime in the world for old Tirebiter, but... Um, that was the name that they uh, that they had, and they still have a, a a statue honoring this this dog, Bip. So, <laughs> um, now their school colors are cardinal, not crimson, and gold. And funny story there is UCLA fans, their crosstown rivals, uh, kind of jokingly refer to them as the ketchup and mustard clad team. Um, <laughs> They, they like to hold up the, the what looks to most like the peace sign, but really they're making the V for victory. And I know that all these things kind of make your stomach turn as a Notre Dame fan there, Bip. So bear with yeah. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so most teams will or most fans will hoist the number one index finger to, to point out the, the number one status of their team. But the Trojans uh, will put two up in the air and there's a couple different origins for the V sign. So. Um, one of the cool and maybe a little bit more grotesque stories is that the the actual Trojans back in the time of Troy used to cut off the index and middle finger of their captured um, archers and would taunt them by holding up both fingers in jest. So um, I thought that was kind of a cool battle story. There was also a, a, a tale that the V sign uh, was used by Winston Churchill back in World War II, uh, signified victory. And that's kind of what the story that most USC fans will go with. Um, they like to travel out around the stadium on a horse, a white horse named Traveler. And uh, the cool thing with that is at the start of the fourth quarter of every game, Traveler and his Trojan rider uh, will travel out and signals the lighting of the Olympic torch as William Tell's overture plays, and he'll point to the large Olympic torch when the Coliseum was used for the, I think it was the 1984 Olympic Games. And um, so they'll light that, and then they'll begin play in the fourth quarter at the Coliseum. Kind of a cool thing. Before the game, they will have the drum major, who's dressed in his Trojan gear, will come out and stab the field with the the ironclad sword, similar to OSU's dotting the eye. But, of course, out on the West Coast, they feel that this is a much better tradition. Um there's also the the lovely song girls that are dressed in their USC sweaters and their trimmed white skirts. And their crosstown rivalry with UCLA, they play for the Victory Bell. And uh, during that week, both schools, well, the, the, the students at USC will try and vandalize the Bruin statue over at UCLA. And um, the winning team in that crosstown game gets to wear or gets to um, paint the Victory Bell in their color. So if USC wins, they get to paint it in that beautiful cardinal color, the hardware surrounding the bell itself. And another cool uh, story about that game real quick, Bip, is the fact that that's one of three contests where both teams will wear their home uniforms basically to indicate that 
doesn't matter where you play. They should be the home team. They are the the true team that is uh, of importance there. So they don't wear their road whites. Both uh, USC and UCLA will wear their home, uh, in USC's case, the, the home Cardinal jerseys there. I like that when teams do that, uh, as long as they're not too similar of color. I always like the home and home look uh, as opposed to the home and then the traditional white away jerseys. So, so cool thing there. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, they have to get clearance from the NCAA. And like I said, I think there's three other contests. I know that Florida and Georgia play in this in a similar fashion. Mm-hmm. And the other game, I think it's Oregon, Oregon State in the, in the Civil War. Um, they've been known to play in, in each team's home jerseys. So two – Two contests from the Pac-12. That's kind of a cool tradition that they've got on the West Coast there. Yeah. So that's that's L.A. What do you got uh, to counter that out in Pac-12 country, Bip? Well, Chappie, I'm going to go with the big boys. That's right, the Huskies. Uh, out in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Washington actually had two mascots before the Husky. They were the Indians and the Vikings. And in 1920, they held the general election as they thought that both the Indians and the Vikings might be uh, a little offensive or just a little risque for their liking. So the general elections that they held for a new mascot uh, adopted the Sun Dodger. That's right. The Fear <laughs> Dodger as its official mascot. And oh, the the drawing of this that I saw, it's a smiling boy with a with an umbrella in the background. So, wow. It, it's, <laughs> Look out. <laughs> yes. It, the Washington University mascot was a boy trying not to get sunburned. So um, <laughs> from that, it's a wonder that Michael Jackson wasn't a uh, Washington fan. <laughs> <laughs> so many people took this name to have a negative connotation. And it wasn't because it was a wimpy mascot. It was because they thought that it brought a negative light to the rainy weather that Washington presented year round. So because of that, a committee was formed, and in 1922, they changed their name officially to the Huskies. A couple of cool traditions that they have. One is their air raid siren, and this is a World War II-era air raid siren uh, at the stadium that sounds when the team enters, um, when they score, and after every win. And from all accounts that I read, it's an extremely extremely loud siren, so um, pretty cool that they were able to have that. Another thing that they do is called sailgating, and I think we've mentioned this for another uh, team in our previous traditions, Chappie. Yeah, Baylor Baylor did that in the in our Big 12 podcast. Okay, so similarly, Husky Stadium gives fans the option of taking a boat right up to the stadium, and if you haven't seen um, Husky Stadium, take a look. It's a really cool backdrop to have. Oh yeah, it is. Uh, to have the ocean right there in their in their background, um, so. You can you can drive your boat right up to the stadium. You can tailgate. Uh, there's even some booze cruise options to where people can take part in leading up to game time before entering the stadium, which sounds awesome as hell to me. Um, wouldn't mm-hmm. have had that anywhere around here. Um, a few sayings that are a couple, uh, saying that they have is uh, a simple "Go Huskies" to where one side of the stadium will chant "Go," and of course the other side would return with Huskies. So, <laughs> That's what we have up there in Washington, Chappie. Take us back to the south, and let's see who you got next. Well, I'm going to go with their noble opponent in the Pac-12 championship this year, and that's the Utah Utes. Yes, uh, the beloved line from my cousin Vinny, the two Utes. Well, <laughs> there's more than just two out in, in uh, Salt Lake City. The, the Utes nickname is an honor to and a, and a tribute to the Great Basin Indian tribe out there. Uh, the Utes were one of the first tribes to acquire 
that land and also one of the first to acquire the horse from the Spanish and transforming it into culture and in the agricultural use that they get today in our in our great country. Now the big thing out in Utah is the mus. Now mus M U S S is today stands for the Mighty Utah Student Section, but it actually is a line that comes from their um, fight song where it basically says no other gang of college men dare meet us in the must. And the word must there means like a fight or a showdown. So this is one, if you've ever watched a Utah home game, this is one of the most avid and vocal student fan clubs in the nation going nearly 6,000 strong at uh, rice Eccles stadium. So, um, you know, today they, they kind of make it easy on people who, who don't reference the fight song and it stands for the mighty Utah student section. So some of the things that the, the must does, well, they have their third down jumps. So obviously when their defense is getting ready to prevent a third down conversion, members will jump around and make noise and hold up three fingers to indicate the importance of the third down. Um, other rituals that they use is the U of U chop, where essentially every time the band plays a specific percussion song, and they take a lot of pride in their percussion out there at Utah, um, members of the, the Musk crew will form a U with their hands and chop to the beat of the music. Uh, they also have a first down chant where they will raise their hands in unison, yelling first down to mimic the referees pointing uh, in the direction of that first down gained by their offense. But a lot of schools use that. So not truly unique to Utah. Um, they uh, Every time the Utes score, the band will play their fight song and signal the Musk crew to sing along in the words of the Utah man, which in my opinion, Bip, is one of the more underrated fight songs. It's, it's very catchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, do yourself a favor, listeners, if you haven't, uh, if you're not familiar with it, look it up on YouTube. It's, it's a really cool rendition. Um, so, also, you can watch for the must to regularly throw up a U, which basically is similar to University of Miami, but instead of putting all fingers up, you basically touch the tips of your thumbs and you extend your pointer finger and then you put down all other three fingers to make a skinnier U. Um, they, uh, they take a lot of pride in their block U landmark. Now, this is a, a block U that is built in the foothills of the Utah mountains, Uh, 103 years ago. So they put lights on it. It's a hundred foot tall and it's a landmark that's basically illuminated and lit up for athletic events, most notably the football games. Um, Originally built with lime, the block U was then replaced by a cement version in 1907. Then in 1969, the design was modified and lights were installed to light it up. So that way it can be seen with the uh, innovation of televised games. So that's something that ESPN and the Pac-12 network and other um, other networks that like to broadcast Utah football games, they make it a point to, to show that to the fans. And then, of course, their biggest rival is what used to be dubbed the Holy War against BYU. Apparently, that's politically incorrect to say anymore. So now it's it's <laughs> been sponsored. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's been sponsored and called the Desiree First Duel. Um not oh, nearly well, that as sounds catchy. better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cause when I hear Desiree first duel automatically, I just think, Oh yeah. BYU, Utah. That's right. Um, <laughs> so more of a PC name. And again, I, I second your <laughs> to that one, but, uh, that's Utah. Certainly a lot of fanfare and a lot of, uh, passion in that student group. Uh, is there another Very one nice. out in the North bit that, that, uh, can rival the, the fan passion out for the must? Yeah, well, we'll go from Salt Lake City to often salty uh, Mike Leach, and we'll go with the Washington State Cougars. 
So the cougar mascot, uh, their first mascot was actually a terrier named Squirt. So they almost the terriers are even worse. They were almost the Squirts. Um, <laughs> they changed their name to the Indian for about ten years, and like most other universities, realized that that may have been a little offensive. So in 1919. Uh, Wazoo beat Cal, and a cartoonist portrayed this by showing a fierce group of Northwestern Cougars uh, chasing away the Golden Bears. A few days later, the Washington State students officially designated the Cougars as their team mascot. Now, their their actual mascot, Butch T. Cougar, was a pretty cool story behind this. He was named after Butch Meeker, who was Washington State's football star at the time. So they can uh, Washington State. Faithful can can thank old Butch for the name of, of Butch T. Cougar. Um, their colors were originally pink and blue, and I'm not making this up. They were picked by the wife of the university's first president. So for all of you out there, it's not just me saying that uh, it must have been a woman that picked pink and blue. But <laughs> then it's changed. True. True. <laughs> <laughs> this was then changed in um, around 1900 when the students voted on a new set of colors which are the crimson and gray that we still see today. Now, one of the most recent things um, that is representative of the university is Old Crimson. And this is the flag that waves at every college game day, um, dating back to October 13th, 2003. Uh, although it was first flown two weeks prior to that, but um, since October 13, 2003, someone from the university, be it fan, alumni, or current student potentially, has flown that flag at every broadcast of ESPN's college game day, um, and it's still, the streak still continues today. So there's been several close calls uh, and obstacles that almost derailed the streak. Uh, one of them it being their closest call was when the flag just got lost in the mail. So they had to scramble around find someone that was within the area to fly it. And luckily um, for college game day fans and uh, the country at large, they were able to um, get it there. Another one was when they broadcast, I believe it was on a uh, maybe the army Navy game where they broadcast from a uh, Naval air carrier or aircraft carrier. So the logistics of getting the flag on there um, and getting, yeah. uh, folks there to represent it was another challenge. So really one of the cooler current, traditions that we see today in college football and uh since they started they have gained a ton of people all across the country funding for it so it should be going and flying at uh every college game day for the near future which is good to see yeah and that was what i mean game day did a great piece and finally 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 they had a game out in pullman this year mm-hmm. that was that that crowd was unbelievable that was probably the best college game day that i've ever seen in the 25 years that i've been watching it ever since they were back in studio with chris fowler and craig james and lee corso mm-hmm. so yeah um yeah cool story and uh they like to say go Cougs and a, th- a thing that they love to mention to their crosstown rivals um, at Washington is they love to mention 0-12 to their hated crosstown rivals. Uh, kind of their trump card to any argument that uh, they have with a Husky fan, and that references uh, a few years ago when the Huskies were a little downtrodden at the same time of Washington State as well. So that Apple Cup was one of the worst in the um, <laughs> series, but Washington State prevailed. And uh, put the uh, the nail in the coffin of that 0 and 12 um, season for the Huskies. So, 
Sure. That's what we got for uh, for Pullman. Chappie, uh, why don't you bring it through in the south again, see uh, who we got next for you. Well, we'll stick with the Cougars nickname, and we're going to go to BYU. Now, I know that BYU is not a member of the Pac-12, but again, uh, in doing some of these traditions, we wanted to pull some of the the teams from the independents who, who could easily fit in a conference. And I think BYU would be a natural fit uh, in the PAC 12 or the, or I should say the PAC 12 would be a natural fit for BYU. So um, also going by the Cougars nickname, their mascot is nicknamed Cosmo, which really is short for cosmopolitan, a student by the name of um, Daniel T. Gallego uh, became the first uh, person to, uh, dress as Cosmo the Cougar, and his roommate, Dwayne Stevenson, was actually the, the person who kind of came up with the name uh, because he claimed that BYU is a very intentional cosmopolitan school uh, that attracts a lot of people from the, the Utah area. So now they also, similar to their rival over in Salt Lake City, out in Provo, the, Provo Utah, they have the Y Mountains. So this is maybe a little bit more nationally recognized uh, than the Block U in Salt Lake City. Sorry, Utah fans. But um, it's featured on almost every shot that a BYU game is on television. And for a while there, it seemed like BYU, especially on the Thursday night games on ESPN, BYU seemed to be playing every Thursday. It was almost um, a little bit bothersome to see the, the Cougars on TV so much. Um, now, it's located about a, a, a mile or a half mile east of campus and halfway up the mountain. And it overlooks the valley and is one of the most prominent features on that campus. So uh, kind of an interesting story. When they were first putting plans for this, they wanted to put the initials BYU on the mountainside in April of 1906. Um, The letter Y was the first one laid out to ensure that the initials were properly centered on the mountain. And then beginning early in the morning, students formed a, a line that kind of zigzagged up the mountainside. And standing eight feet apart, each student would carry a load of lime powder up to the next person and then return for another. Uh, They were expected to complete the laying out of all three letters by 10 a.m., but by 4 p.m., only the Y was covered. And after realizing that this was going to be such laborious work, they decided that they were just going to scrap the other two letters and go with just the Y, which (laughs) kind of explains the Y logo um, that stands out in the, uh, in the Brigham Young university uh, logo there. So, yep. That Y mountain is really just a a product of being lazy. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, now they, uh, they also put a lot of stock into what used to be called the Holy War, the game against Utah. Now this game is always sold out. Uh, students from both schools will travel and these fan bases hate each other during this game. Now the cool thing is they, they do uh, work with one another and the, the week before the game is played, both campuses compete in an annual food drive to see who can gather the most non-perishable foods. Um, it's sponsored by both schools alumni association. So they do a lot of good work, um, especially being uh, steeped in religion. Uh, the United Way receives the food and uh, is responsible for its distribution. But make no mistake, when you get into the stadium, whether you're at Rice Eccles or whether you're at Lavelle Edwards Stadium, those fan bases hate each other during that time. And they certainly are not forgiving of, of one another either. So um, now BYU's fans, speaking of that, they are known as traveling extremely well and they're pretty rabid. So you can expect to see a very large contingent of Cougar fans that are going to opposing stadiums as well as filling up and and nearly selling out or selling out Lavelle Edwards Stadium out there in Provo. 
their student section is known as the Rock, which ROC stands for the Roar of the Cougars, and and they take a lot of pride in their student and fan section. Um, they um, they have something called the Victory Bell on campus just outside the stadium. So it's rung after every home victory in, in football, but other sports as well. And uh, the original Y-shaped bell traveled across the plains with the early pioneers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and was, was used to call meetings among the saints and to announce any deaths in the community. So it was donated to Brigham Young Academy in 1875, and it was at that time used to begin and dismiss classes until it was destroyed in a fire in 1884. So BYU was without a bell for the next 28 years. And then eventually in 1903, um, the student body continued to grow and there was a greater need for a bell on campus. So they brought it back or they, they refurbished a new one. And actually, um, it was purchased from the American Bell Foundry in Michigan, BIP. So, uh, woohoo, Michigan. Yeah. Um, and um, so ever since, the Victory Bell is big enough and loud enough to be heard outside the building it was housed in. So expect to hear those Victory Bells clanging after a BYU victory. So that's what we've got in Provo. Uh, that's that's BYU. Let's send it back over, BIP, and tell us some more from the north. We'll take it from Provo to Palo Alto, and we're going to talk about the Cardinal. And that's the Cardinal, not the Cardinals, of Stanford. And the it, as I mentioned, it is the Cardinal, standing for the color, not the bird. And was <laughs> Right. Uh, uh, stop me if you've heard this before. was originally the Indians, but was... <laughs> in 1972 no. now outside of the fact that uh they're called the cardinal you don't really have much of a mascot with that their unofficial uh mascot is a tree and the university has never settled on an official mascot but this represents what everyone most notably knows stanford for and it's a red coast or it's a coast redwood and appears um the, the same tree appears on the municipal seal of palo alto california in which the university is located, the same appears on the official Stanford University seal. Um, so the real story of the tree starts in 1975, amid uh, all the debate of what the school's mascot should be. The, the band performed a, a series of facetious halftime shows suggesting other new mascot, uh, mascot candidates um, uh, outside of the Indians that they were changing from. One of them was a steaming manhole, another was a french fry, and uh, a tree. <laughs> So the tree actually gained so much fanfare that the band decided that they should make it a permanent part of the halftime show. And that kind of got the ball rolling and started the process of the tree mascots that you see today. So um, that crazy acid trip looking tree that you see today can be <laughs> attributed back to what was essentially making fun of the mascot naming process. Now, nice. Um, they the campus that they're located on is nicknamed the farm and this goes back to um the days in which horses would roam the area instead of students as that area was the farm of the university founders leland and jane stanford uh before it obviously gained more uh buildings and um you know whatnot on the on the official university so that's where the farm nickname comes from and the biggest game that they have every year is their game against Cal known as the big game. It was first mm -hmm. in 1892 and is one of the oldest rivalries in college football and gives us one of the greatest sound bites ever of, and the band is out of the field. <laughs> that lovely, Very good, uh, <laughs> that lovely, uh, um, win that, that Stanford still doesn't give credit for 
um, despite the fact of the uh, the end result. So um, the saying that they have um, during games is uh, it's said by the student section as they point in the direction of the offense every time they get a first down and say, oh, 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 first down. So I'm not sure if I have the cadence correct. I couldn't find that uh, that clip on YouTube anywhere. So if if any Stanford fans are listening to this, I may have butchered that, but um, that's essentially uh, what they do after each first down. All right, that's what kind we of a tribute to kind of a tribute to Vinny Barbarino only, although he was uh, ooh ooh ooh. Or actually, no, I, I got that wrong. Not Barbarino. That was Horshack. So uh, <laughs> that's good because I'm I'm too I'm too young for that show anyway. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that's what we have for the Cardinal Chappie. Take us back down south in the Pac-12 and let us know who you got next. Well, we'll stick with a team that has Cardinal in its color, and that's the Arizona Wildcats. So interesting story about why they are Cardinal red and navy blue. Now, those are some of the colors that the state of Arizona kind of associates as quote-unquote official colors, although it's really blue and gold. Um, Prior to Arizona playing football in 1899, they had sage green and silver as their colors. However, um, a former student manager um, struck a deal or struck a bargain with a local merchant for solid blue game sweaters with red trim, where basically it was gonna it was too hard to get that sage green and silver colors back at that time. It was a lot easier to get uh, the the more popular blue and that red or cardinal trim. So. Um, the the uniforms they came out in those uniforms that day and they figured well we're going to save some money and we like this look anyway and so the cardinal red and navy blue have been worn by arizona athletes ever since now the wildcat nickname uh was kind of ho-hum similar to others um where a a newspaper writer kind of gave them that nickname again the los angeles times which was the big publication out west back then, Bill Henry wrote, the Arizona men showed the fight of Wildcats today. So originally they were just known as the Arizona Varsity. So ever since 1914, they then uh, kind of adopted that Wildcats moniker and have uh, carried that ever since. Now, oddly enough, in that game, Arizona lost 14 nothing. So even though they played like <laughs> the fight of Wildcats, they got blanked in that one. So... Um, Kind of an interesting story there. The first time that I've heard of a uh, a team getting praised, but you know, losing and not scoring any points, and, and then it right. stuck. So, now many college football fans are are familiar with the bear down phrase, and it's even um, outlined in their field. So here's where that comes from. Um, Arizona teams have followed this custom for about seventy years, and it symbolizes the Wildcats' manner of thinking. And it's the battle cry for the university. So it comes back um, to a a request uttered in George Gipp fashion by former Wildcat star John Salmon in 1926. Now, Salmon relayed a message to his teammates from his deathbed. Uh, So he was not doing well. And um, his coach, Pop McHale, uh, he told coach, tell them, tell the team to bear down. And the coach passed along this inspirational message to his team shortly after Salmon died. And despite those faithful word, or fateful words being spoken by someone who had their life cut short, the legacy of bearing down still stands tall. So that team came out and, and they were inspired by Salmon's words. And that has kind of stuck ever since. And there's a cool video that they'll play on the Jumbotron out at, um, you know, in Arizona. And, uh, you know, you'll hear kind of the words 
orated by by salmon in a reenactment and it's a there's a cool message of that on youtube as well i, I encourage people to take a look at mm. now um the uh their mascot their costume mascot they actually have two wilbur and wilma the um the wildcats similar to the the lovely couple of gators down in gainesville um they they have something called a mountain now this is something that they more or less share with their rival arizona state who we'll get to in a minute but perched high above this cactus desert of tucson is a landmark that reflects arizona school pride and on sentinel peak it's also known as a mountain and standing 1600 feet high um there's a 70 foot wide rock and mortar uh, that forms a block A visible for a great distance. Distance, and it's so it was constructed by Arizona students back in 1915 as a tribute to the school's seven to three upset over Pomona earlier that year, the mighty Pomona team. Um, <laughs> today, students can still see the sparkling magic of that win, um, but they they do have to keep it protected from vandalous Arizona State um, fans who always try to go in and paint it with a uh, a maroon or a gold red to to change it to their shade as opposed to the the cardinal of of arizona um they do duel the the sun devils for the territorial cup every year what they what is known as the duel in the desert um and that pretty much wraps up arizona in terms of their traditions so a couple of uh, interesting ones let's get back to you bip and, and hear what else we've got in the north Sure, we'll go to um, Eugene and, and talk about the Oregon Ducks. Now, they were originally known as the Webfoots, and that referenced a group of fishermen from Massachusetts who were heroes during the American Revolution. Their descendants of these, uh, the descendants of these men actually eventually relocated out to Oregon in the 19th century, and their name stuck with them. So a sports editor of the Oregonian won a naming contest in the early 1900s, and the name was adopted by Oregon. So spinning off of that, the Ducks having web feet, actually became the new master <laughs> university and it kind of just spun into what you know now as the Oregon Ducks. So you might notice that some of the previous depictions of the Ducks mascot looks like Donald Duck. And this came about kind of by accident um, as a lot of the cartoonists would draw um, Oregon in um, newspapers and it would look similar to Donald Duck. And Walt Disney kind of noticed this. And the so it along that same time, the Oregon athletic director met with Disney due to a connection that he had, and an informal agreement was actually made between Disney and Oregon to use that. Um, but in 2010, the two sides kind of went away from that and agreed to um, use it a little less often, so that way the actual duck mascot can be used for more public appearances and not have to worry about trademarks um, getting in the way or anything like that. So Sure. Um, one of the things that you'll see throughout the stadium is throwing up the O and in which the, the fans and the students make a circle with their index fingers and their thumbs touching with the, the fingertips of the rest of their fingers all touching as well to make that O that uh, the Oregon Ducks have as their um, one of their other uh, symbols and, and logos. Um, the In Austin Stadium, you'll always hear at the beginning of every game, it never rains at Austin Stadium. And that uh, is the PA announcer letting the crowd know, uh, despite whatever the weather report is for that day, um, kind of a cool send off for their players as they uh, get ready for kickoff. And the song Shout by the Isley Brothers can be heard throughout the as well as 
fun fact, I didn't know this, the movie Animal House was actually shot at the University of Oregon. So Henson yep. students all go nuts when the song plays on. And it's really one of those cool atmospheric things that gets played at uh, college universities around the country. So, And Bip, I'm going to go on record and say that that is uh, one of the more overrated movies, in my opinion. I've seen it. I didn't really see the draw. But again, that was a little bit before my time. So if people want to chime in on that, uh, I think uh, Animal House, a little bit overrated. Yeah, I think you're going to tick some people off with that, but I agree. With That's you. okay. <laughs> I, I've, I've never seen it, but I've never had a draw to see it because it didn't seem to appeal to me, despite the fact of how great of reviews it's had in the past. Right, right. <laughs> so that's what we got for uh, the Oregon Ducks. Chappie, take us back south. Let us know what you got. Well, in the spirit of Hollywood, but also um, Disneyland, which, uh, you know, talking about Donald Duck, Disneyland, did you know, Bip, uh, opened in 1955 on July 17th. Kind of a special day to you. Um, All right. <laughs> it's Bip's birthday, for those who don't know. So um, the UCLA Bruins, um, their colors are blue and gold. And the reason why blue and gold, it's supposed to reflect the, the Golden State, which is the nickname for the state of California, and also the California poppy and sunsets. And then, of course, the blue is is to represent the the ocean, but also the local wildflowers and, of course, the the blue California sky when you can see past that smog. So um, now the, the shade of blue has changed from powder blue to sky blue to royal blue throughout the years. Their students or fan section is known as the Den, of course, playing into the, the Bruins nickname. Now, um, Bruins, interesting there, UCLA students used to be called the Cubs, and that was a nod to the school's uh, status where they were not doing so well. And so many students and administrators didn't like that nickname for long. So in 1924, they wanted to go with the more ferocious sounding Grizzly. But um, the University of Montana was a member of was also a member of the Pacific Coast Conference back then. So now Montana is at the FCS level. But since they already had the Grizzly or the Grizzlies nickname, um, it was decided that they needed to change and search for a third nickname. And so they settled mm -hmm. on the the Bruins, um, even though the nicknames Buccaneers and Gorillas were once considerations. Um, mm -hmm. But also, you know, UC Berkeley out at Cal was also using the Bears and the Bruins. So there's been a lot of connections between UCLA and Cal Berkeley. So really UCLA um, kind of settled with Bruins, even though that was really their fourth choice. And um, many will claim that Cal Berkeley actually had the, the Bears nickname before they did. So um, <laughs> still not their own. Right. Um, right. They, of course, have the, the big crosstown rivalry with USC and, and also play for the Victory Bell. So in addition to protecting their Bruin statue, UCLA students will try to vandalize Tommy Trojan, the USC statue over in uh, on their side of town. Well, um, what they do uh, on both sides, really, is they will wrap up their statue in, well, USC wraps Tommy Trojan up in duct tape, but at UCLA, they will put a big tarp and protect that with students to protect um, the Bruin statue from being vandalized at that point. So if UCLA wins the game against the Trojans, they get to paint their victory bell, the what they call true blue in honor of their UCLA team. Um, they have uh, what they call the eight clap cheer. So what they'll do is um, they will raise their arms up in the air, then clap eight times while letting out a chant of UCLA um, and then pumping their fists in the air before ending with UCLA, fight, fight, fight. 
Um, so not a lot of traditions over there at UCLA in terms of what they do at their games out in the Rose Bowl. Um, but they feel oftentimes that they, they're going to let their football team do the speaking for them and, and traditions are, are winning. So sure. that wraps it up for UCLA out in Westwood, BIP. Uh, where to next? Well, let's go from the Bruins to the Bears. And as you mentioned, uh, Cal Berkeley, known as the Golden Bears, and that comes from 1895. There was a 12-man track team um, that became the first Cal team to compete outside the state. They carried banners with the state's emblem, which is a grizzly bear, in gold. And they won several meets, which was a big feat as the East Coast was generally thought of as having the superior athletes for track meets at that particular time. So the Golden Bear became the mythical guardian of the university, and it derived uh, into them uh, choosing the the golden bear as their as their mascot, um, and Oski the bear or Oski, not sure which pronunciation, um, is their actual official mascot. And this derives from the Oski yell, which I'm not going to go into it because there's a lot of words that I may butcher and mispronounce. But Chappie, <laughs> you know that second line says whiskey wee wee. So yes, sir, <laughs> uh, a favorite of ours for sure, just because of that. Um, now, and, wh- and whiskey does make me wee wee at times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little more so than I'd like to at particular parties and such, but, uh, sure. <laughs> so, uh, Cal is the other half of the big game and the trophy for that is the ax. And in 1899, this all started at a Cal Stanford baseball game where a uh, group of Stanford fans were using this ax to taunt Cal fans by cutting up pieces of, uh, blue and gold ribbon. So, Cal had a dramatic comeback, uh, come from behind win in that baseball game, and some Cal fans were actually able to liberate the axe from the Stanford fans. They held on to it until about 1930 when some folks from Palo Alto retrieved it and took it back to Stanford, and after that, the two schools agreed that it would be the prize awarded to the winner of the big game each year. Cal also had the California Victory Cannon, and this is shot off at the beginning of each game, after each score, and after each victory. And it actually ran out of ammunition in 1991 after a game uh, or during a game against Pacific when the Golden Bears scored 12 touchdowns and no longer had any more ammunition to fire off uh, after that uh, offensive barrage. Ah, Pacific, the the former school of uh, NFL quarterback Jeff Garcia. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So that's what we got for the Cal Golden Bears. Chappie, take us back south again. All right, well, we're going to go back to the, the land of the desert and go to Arizona State, where their, uh, their shouting cry is fork em. Now, let me correct myself, or let me clarify <laughs> myself. Fork, F-O-R-K, um, and that's in reference to the, the pitchfork with the, that the, the deviled mascot Sparky will, will tote and, and use to attack his opponents. So they like to use the, uh, the forks up, Manic or moniker and also the hand signal. So basically, if you touch your ring finger to your thumb and make the ASU pitchfork, that's the hand sign that you'll see flashed a lot in uh, Sun Devil Stadium. So the fans like to wear gold at all times at home games, except during the maroon monsoon and the blackout game every year that they will designate uh, preseason. Uh, one of the cool things, and it's because I have a lot of respect for this guy, they like to run in and out of Tillman Tunnel, named, of course, after former Arizona State All-American Pat Tillman, who unfortunately died in service of his country during the war in Iraq. Um, they also like to protect a mountain. So um, while going over to Tucson and trying to um, 
vandalize Arizona's A Mountain. They also have an A Mountain atop the Tempe Buttes, which um, is right underneath Sun Devil Stadium or right around Sun Devil Stadium. And their track record in recent years has been mixed with Rogue Wildcats successfully painting the A Cardinal, uh, which is their shade of red in 2013 and 2014. So um, need to, to shore up security there a little bit more on their side of A Mountain. Um, on they like to shake their keys at kickoff as most teams do they uh one of my favorite sounds of a stadium on third downs they like to play hell's bells again kind of playing into that devil mascot that they hell or have and they like to yell give them hell on third down um, the student section is known as the double inferno where basically they will line up both sides of the uh, tunnel that the visiting team will run out of and come into and and like we mentioned earlier give them hell in that sense and of course duel for the desert against arizona playing for that territorial cup and what a good one we were treated to this year bip that we can get into uh when yeah. we talk about our games but um mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's Sparky and and the Sun Devils in Arizona State. Let's let's hear from one more in the North. Okay, so we're going to go talk about the Oregon State Beavers, and the beaver is actually the uh, state animal of Oregon, and it even appears on the state flag. So uh, originated in the 19th century when fur hats were fashionable and Oregon streams were an important source of beaver pelts. The Oregon State Yearbook uh, took it a state uh, took it a um, step further than that, and they are actually known that um, their university yearbook was actually known as the Beaver as far back as 1916. So uh, the fact of the state animal and the university yearbook helped solidify the Beaver as the university's official mascot, and their official mascot is Benny Beaver. And this started back in 1942 when a group of students were gathered on a float around a Beaver statue that was labeled as Benny, and uh, that then jumped forward to about 10 years later when the first student mascot actually appeared um, in a in his beaver uh, costume uh, for the, the football team. Um, their biggest game of the year that they play um, is the Civil War that they play against the Oregon Ducks. And they play for one of the cooler uh, trophies in the country called the Platypus Trophy, which is um, – <laughs> Cool reference to the fact that the you know the ducks and the beavers playing for the mishmash animal known as the platypus, and the uh, what's really cool about the some of the home games at Oregon State is the stadium splits into three different groups. The first shouts O, the second will shout S, and the third will shout U, and this will continue around until everyone erupts in a chanting of O S U O S U. That's cool. So that's what we got for the uh, the Beavers of Oregon State, Chappie. Let, why don't you uh, take us home with the uh, the Buffaloes of Colorado? Yeah, I was going to say, going from a uh, a a furry mammal type uh, creature to a much furrier, much bigger mammal. That's <laughs> the buffalo. Um, now they do have a live mascot, Ralphie, which most people are familiar with. Um, and running with Ralphie has been named by many as one of the coolest traditions and one of the greatest. Um, entrances in college football. So at the beginning of each half 
uh, both before the game and then also coming out of the locker room at halftime. Six Ralphie runners will run with this large uh, bison buffalo around the field and take care of him at a secret location off campus. And in in the process of doing so, they will dress up like cowboys and cowgirls. Now, here's where that came from. In 1934, after the selection of buffaloes as the nickname for that uh, program, a group of students paid $25 to rent a buffalo calf and a cowboy as his keeper for the last game of the season. Now, this calf was the son of a uh, famed bison named Killer. And uh, that day when they brought that bison out, it took the cowboy and four other students to keep this calf under control on the sidelines during a game in which they won 7 nothing over the University of Denver on Thanksgiving Day. And so that became a tradition. And really, students looked at that as um, we want our football team to be as uncontrollable as this Ralphie bison is. So that's where that came from. Now, they do have a mask or a, a costume mascot named Chip who it doesn't seem as ferocious, but he has won several awards for best mascot in college sports. So uh, kudos, Chip. Um, their, their black and gold colors represent the mineral wealth of the state, obviously being a, a, a very big gold mining area. Um, I think one of the cooler scenes is Folsom Field. Now, you mentioned the University of Washington as being a beautiful backdrop. Folsom Field in in the foot of the Rocky Mountains and that Colorado Arc in the south end zone. To me, that's always a great place to watch a game, especially when you get snow falling from the Rockies in October and November. Bip, I know you and I both enjoy watching a uh, a snow showered football game when it's not one of our teams playing. So um, right. that's cool to see out in uh, in Boulder. And then uh, they they're big. Rivalry, since they don't play Nebraska anymore uh, on a regular basis, is the Rocky Mountain Showdown, which is usually the opening weekend where they will play the team from Fort Collins and Colorado State. Everybody makes T-shirts. They'll have parties. They get really excited and take party buses down to Invesco Field, where, which is the home of the NFL Denver Broncos, to watch that game. And then one last thing that they like to do when games are played at Folsom Field back in Boulder, Colorado, is players and fans will rub the horns of the Buffalo statue in front of, Fol- in front of Folsom Field. So that's Colorado, Bip, and that wraps up the Pac-12 plus BYU. So 13 teams with their various traditions and uh, rituals that we like to hear. So we appreciate you guys listening to us. Where can you find us? Well, in addition to where you're listening now, if it's easier to listen through Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or Radio Public, Find us there. Take a look. If you need us to send you the link, shoot us an email at bowlfulofchips at gmail.com or tweet us, and we'll be glad to help you out make it easier for you. So, Bip, it's time to pack it up and Washington, our hands of the premier West Coast Conference. Join us next time when we delve into the 12 teams and how they finished in 2018 and what they'll look like heading into the season that starts just 166 days from now. Bip, I'm excited. Um. <laughs> We want to thank all of you for listening, especially those who are back again. We hope you got what you were wanting out of this podcast. And if the jury's still out, tune in later in the week for our next podcast where we'll give you even more. One thing's for sure, though, we will always have a lot of information for you to help get you fixed until week zero's kickoff. We strongly hope that you continue to listen, but more importantly, spread the word and help us be heard. Share, subscribe, and rate us. Let us know what you like or what you want. Like a fine chef, we want to, t- we want to take our specialty and make it to your liking. Thanks for listening to A Bowl Full of Chips. I am Chappie. I'm Bip. And remember, biggest isn't always best, so thanks for choosing the right over the rest. Later, dudes.